scripture reading for our sermon this morning comes from Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 48. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling us this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that master says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut, cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is the word of the Lord. Hey guys, good morning. Uh, my name is Harry. If we haven't met yet, um, I love the song that um, we were singing earlier where Daniel was leading us. It says, my eyes are on eternity, right? I love that. And this is what the sermon is about today. We're living in anticipation. And so we're going through this, um, a Luke sermon series. And um, this week, um, we touch on a, a passage that's a little bit more difficult to, to tackle because there's judgment and cutting into pieces and things like that. And uh, we're just going to talk about that briefly uh, closer towards the end. But so far in Luke, Jesus teaches us who he is. He is this humble servant king that comes not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve. Uh, Jesus teaches us what the kingdom of God is like. Its values are different. It's countercultural. It's very different than the world. He teaches us what it means to be a follower of him in this kingdom. It's a radical reprioritization, a reordering of our life priorities to follow Jesus. Right, following Jesus in this kingdom is not about uh, just good vibes and uh, good feels and self-help. And as Rich preached uh, the last couple of weeks, the kingdom of God is not about behavior modification. It's about a complete heart transformation that turns our life upside down as we seek first the kingdom of God. And what we also highlighted in our time in Luke is also that... Um, there is this kingdom that is in one sense already here, 
right? We are all a part of this uh, spiritual kingdom of God here on earth when Jesus came 2,000 years ago. But we also wait for a future physical kingdom to come, right? So we live in between these two times. We live between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And so we're going to talk about that today. Uh, Jesus teaches his disciples that he will come back. Um, He's going to come back a second time and that we must be ready uh, for when he comes back. And so we're going to talk about how we should live in anticipation of his return. So three points for us this morning, as usual. The return of Jesus, the faithful and unfaithful servant, and the service of Jesus. And so our first point, uh, we're going to talk about the return of Jesus and what that looks like. Uh, Throughout the teachings of Jesus, he uses a lot of parables. And if you guys remember, um, his parables are these short stories that convey a a specific truth about the kingdom of God. And in our sermon passage, he gives us two parables. One is about the, un, uh, the faithful and watchful servants of a house who are waiting up for their master to come home from a, a wedding celebration and so they could serve him. They're ready to go. Verse 36, it says, Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So that's the first parable. The other parable is about a homeowner uh, who shouldn't leave his house because he knows that a thief uh, is about to come and break in. And so he's going to prevent that break in. Verse 39, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. Uh, We'll talk more about these parables in our next point. Um, But very simply, the point of these two parables, um, the The message that Jesus is trying to convey here is about readiness. He wants his disciples to be ready for his return. And so after he shares these parables, he even says it explicitly. He says it directly. Verse 40, he says, You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Again, we'll talk more about what it means to be ready in our next point. But for our first point, I want us to take a look at and focus on what it looks like, what it means that the Son of Man is coming. Um, in theology, when we study uh, future events of God and Jesus and the church, we call it eschatology. Um, eschaton is a Greek word that means the last. Ology is the study of. So eschatology is the study of the last. And so in theology, it's the study of the end of times. So the question is, what is going to happen at the end of times? What does that mean for us? Uh, scholars and theologians, they have different ideas and beliefs of what is going to happen exactly. There's a lot of debate about the timeline and the sequence of events leading up, leading up to Jesus' return. Um, and we're not, not going to talk about that today. We're not going to talk about the different views, but everybody is clear on one point. The scripture is crystal clear that Jesus is going to return. Uh, late Pastor Arnold Olson, he wrote this. Ever since the first days of the Christian church, Christians have been looking for that blessed hope, that glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. They may have disagreed as to its timing and to the events of the eschatological calendar. However, all are agreed that the final solution to the problems of this world is in the hands of the King of Kings, who will someday make the kingdoms of this world his very own. Jesus is going to return. It's clear. We're not going to get into the theological debates of these various views, We're simply looking at what Jesus is teaching us in this parable. And the bottom line is that he's going to return at a time that nobody knows 
and we need to be ready for his return. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about the return of Jesus. In the New Testament, it's mentioned over 300 times. And so we're going to take a quick 1,000 feet overview, snapshot view at some of these passages in the Bible that get to give us a better um, and basic idea of what this looks like. So first, we do not know when he's going to come, right? That's in our passage. In verse 40, um, he says, you must be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Um, in Matthew's account of this same parable, he says this, <clears throat> but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Uh, there has been a lot of speculation. There have been a lot of people that um, predict the exact time and date of when Jesus will return through some mathematical formula that they think they found with numbers in the Bible. They think they uh, can um, predict like these world events. And uh, what's kind of crazy is that online there's this uh, thing called a rapture index that keeps track of these world events. And they give a score indicating how close they think Jesus is coming. Is his return going to be imminent? It's kind of ridiculous. And it's pretty crazy. And you know what? We don't need to guess or be worried about when Jesus is coming. Because it's clear. He says that we don't know. It could be tomorrow. It could be 500 years. It could be 1,000 years. We don't know. All we know is that he says, be ready. Second, his return will be physical and visible. And so after Jesus died on the cross, we know he was resurrected. Um, he was on earth in the flesh with his disciples and other eyewitnesses for 40 days. After these 40 days, he physically went into heaven. He ascended into heaven in front of his disciples. Uh, we see this account in um, the book of Acts. The first chapter, verse 10, says this. While they were gazing into heaven, the disciples, as Jesus went, behold, two men, which were angels, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Right, so his resurrection, it was physical. When he left, it was as a physical body. He's going to return in the same way, physically. Related to this, his return will also be visible for all to see. Revelation 1.7 says this, Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So when he returns, it's not going to be quiet. It's not going to be secret. The entire world is going to know when he returns. And lastly, third, his return will transform and renew all physical creation, including our physical bodies. Uh, there's so much more that we can talk about here. But for now, in this super quick snapshot view, uh, just know that we will experience a completely redone physical creation and world that has no death or sickness, or sadness. Right? That's our hope. Um, Revelations 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. 
he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. The Apostle Paul, he teaches us also in Philippians 3, that our physical bodies will be made new by Jesus as well. He says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So the Bible doesn't say exactly how everything is going to look, but things are physically going to be made eternally new and glorious. So we ask, why is it important that Jesus' coming be physical? Well, if I tell you that um, his return is going to be spiritual, right, what does that really mean? Right, are we just going to be these floaty, ethereal spirits and ghosts? Right, it's a little bit harder to grasp that and harder to understand. But if I told you that the return of Jesus was going to be physical, that it's going to be tangible, that he's going to be right here with us, just like you and I are right here in this room, in the flesh, right, we can relate. Uh, there's more joy in that. We can be moved. We can, be underst- we can understand a little bit more. Right? There's kind of like a joyful reunion between close friends, close family members that we haven't seen in a while. It's kind of uh, the difference between like chatting on the phone or um, texting uh, your date versus being in person with, with them on a date, right? Or being virtual, um, worshiping, or being in person. There's, it's different, right? You're right here with, uh, with Jesus. And so this is why it's important to understand that his return is physical. And so very plainly, to recap this part, Jesus will return at an unknown time. He's going to return physically and visibly, and he's going to recreate and renew all of creation. And so maybe you're thinking, okay, cool. Uh, Jesus is going, going to return for real, for real, but what does that mean for us right now? It means that the, eternity, the entirety of our lives is meant to live in anticipation, Right, joyful anticipation of Jesus to return to us. Right? It, it stirs, this anticipation kind of stirs in our hearts this longing, this desire to want to see him and be with him again. I've shared this uh, story before, but several years ago, um, good friends and I, we wanted to get um, House of Prime Rib in San Francisco. <clears throat> so weeks in advance, we booked uh, uh, this, um, um, book our time there. And as the day, the reservation day comes around, right, we're group chatting, we're texting back and forth, and we're really excited about um, enjoying this expensive but highly anticipated meal that we only have once in a while. And I didn't eat all day for, for this meal, right? So <clears throat> I didn't eat breakfast and I didn't eat lunch. You guys know how it is, right? Um, and I was just thinking about dinner this whole time as we were all working. And um, I really wanted to be hungry, I really wanted to savor this meal, Um, and it's in this waiting that there's this buildup. There's this excitement about coming into this meal, and, you know, I'm not a fan of driving into the city because the traffic is always, like, really bad, and on this particular day, um, it took three hours to get from home to to the restaurant, from Fremont to uh, San Francisco. The, The traffic was just really bad, and normally, I'd be pretty irritated. There would be some cussing going on, but on that day eyes were on the prize, right? Eating that King Henry cut with good friends, nothing else mattered. 
I didn't care that it took me three hours. Like, I could have waited six hours and I would have been okay. I was waiting for this moment. This is what a deep longing and anticipation means for us as Christians. You see, risen learning to live in anticipation of the return of Jesus means that we constantly look forward to being with our King and our Savior, and it gives us this endurance and this hope in the waiting, no matter what happens. Right? Nothing else matters. Eyes on the prize. You know, when Jesus comes, I imagine that it's going to be um, like that moment where, you know, sometimes we, uh, you see those video clips of those military moms and dads that have been away for a while, and um, they come to the school event to surprise their kids, and once they see each other, once they lock eyes, man, they, they scream, there's excitement, there's joy, they run up to each other and they hug, right? There's a homecoming. This is what we have to look forward to when Jesus returns. Christianity is not about self-help. It's not about temporary good feels. It is ultimately about a homecoming, an eternal homecoming with Jesus, to have our hearts filled with joy. So Jesus, Jesus says he's coming, and as we live in anticipation of his coming, we are told to be ready at all times. And so this brings us to our second point. The faithful and unfaithful servant. Uh, coming back to one of the parables, Jesus says in verse 35, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So there's the master of this house and he is away at this wedding celebration. And these Hebrew wedding celebrations lasted a long time. Um, not just hours, they could last several days. And so for his return, it was uncertain. It could be anybody's guess. But the servants of that house, they were good servants. They didn't worry about when uh, their master was coming because they were always ready. In the, even in the late hours of the night, it says that they would keep the oil, the oil lamps filled with, and it was burning throughout the night. Basically, it was like keeping the lights on. They were, they, they were called to stay dressed for action. Right, so back then, they, had, they wore these, um, these long, flowy robes that went down to their ankles. And anytime they had to do rigorous activity, they would wear a belt and they would pull up their robes and tuck it into their belt. And so it would free up their legs, right? Their knees were exposed. Uh, they, had, they were more mobile to move around. It's kind of like if we, were changed, if we changed out of our tight, skinny jeans and into some workout clothes so that we can have more mobility and flexibility. And so this is what it means when they were being dressed for, uh, when they were dressed for action. And so these servants, as we see, they are faithful, they are vigilant, they are watching, they're waiting for their master to come home, right? They're not grumbling, they're not complaining, they don't have bad attitudes, they're not lazy. They serve eagerly as they wait and anticipate their master's return. Uh, sometimes when people come over for um, dinner, once in a while, Lauren and I will be, will have had a long day, it was a busy day, and um, Sometimes what ends up happening, usually me, is I procrastinate cleaning up. And Lauren's usually good with all the food and stuff, but I'll procrastinate cleaning up. And so um, around 6 o'clock, 6.30, it rolls around, and I start cleaning up at like 6.20 or something. And um, I get flustered, right? I was like, oh, there's so much stuff everywhere. There's stuff all over the place. I clean up the bathroom still. There's like, we have to make sure there's no dookies and pee in the, in the toilet because the kids always leave it there. And so I get flustered. And by the time they come, it's not fully cleaned, and um, my mind is just so distracted. Right? That's not being ready. 
But on a good day, normally we're good and ready to go. Lauren will have the food prepped and ready well ahead of time. Um, I will have cleaned up the bathroom and everything and vacuumed well before people show up. And so when they do arrive, we're present. We're eager. We're waiting for them to come in. We're, we receive them as friends and guests, and we're there in the moment with them, right? That's being ready. Jesus, he tells his disciples to be like these faithful servants in the parable, always at the ready. Don't procrastinate. Always be prepared. Uh, let's see what more Jesus says about the faithful servants. In verse 42 and 44, <clears throat> the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Then he is talking about us being these faithful and wise managers over his house. It means that we don't own the house or anything in it. We are stewards. Stewards means that we are managers. We manage his household. So this has huge implications for how we are to live. You see, church, the reality of this world is that nothing in our lives is our own. As followers of Jesus, we all live as servants in this kingdom of God, eagerly awaiting the return of King Jesus. And so we ask practically today, how can we be ready for Jesus as faithful servants and wise managers? Remember last week he uh, preached about money and generosity, and um, immediately after his verses comes this parable about faithful and unfaithful servants and managers. And so we see that there is a clear and direct connection here between our money and our lives and everything we own and how we manage it, how we use it to serve God and serve others. This means that everything that we own, everything that we have been given by God, whether it's our personality, our situations, our, our skills, our talents, our resources, it's been given to us by God to be generous with, right? to serve Him, to care for others. We are blessed tremendously by God so that we can bless others out of our joy, out of our abundance of what God has given to us. This is what it means when he says in verse 48, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to, uh, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. It kind of sounds like Spider-Man, right? <laughs> you see, whatever we have been given in life, it is all used to serve, to bless others. That's what we are called to do. And so, put, so to be these good and ready servants, these faithful and wise managers, means we are to joyfully be generous in all of our resources, right? our time, our love, our home, our energy, our skills, our talents, our prayers. Risen, it means practically, rather than just thinking about ways to pad our retirement, we use our money joyfully to serve the kingdom. Again, it doesn't mean that you have to give your money here at Risen. Like Rich said last week, find missionaries to support. Find nonprofit organizations that you believe in that will help the disenfranchised and the marginalized. If your neighbor is working hard, they still can't pay uh, for their dinners and, and they can't support their kids, find ways to help and support them. 
It means that rather than just watching TV and playing games after work all the time, be joyfully generous with your time. Invite people over. Cook dinner for them. Provide dinner for them. Befriend them. Pray with them. It means rather than just planning out your own vacation, find ways to joyfully give of your time in serving the city with the unending needs of people there. It means rather than just working nonstop, trying to get that promotion, you need to learn how to prioritize. Learning how to joyfully care for your husband, your wife, your kids, your community here, that needs you to lead them to, for other brothers and sisters to be discipled. You know, I say this not as though that I have it all together and you guys don't. Like, I am right there with you guys. I speak for myself here. And I totally understand that we all need boundaries, that we all need to care for ourselves. I'm a huge proponent that you care for yourself, that you don't burn out. And please don't hear me say that you can't take vacations, that you can't hang out and play games after work. I want to do that. I am right there with you guys. We are free to do all of those things. But the question we ask is this. Are we faithful and wise managers of everything that God has given to us with our time, our talents, our treasures? Risen, do we live as faithful servants in the kingdom of God, joyfully anticipating his return, or do we live in our own kingdoms of self? You know, in uh, classic Jesus fashion, and in contrast to <clears throat> the faithful servant that we just talked about, Jesus gives a proper and grim warning against a servant that is unfaithful. He says this in verse 45 and uh, 46. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Man, this is a hard saying. Um, talks uh, and, and, uh, about judgment, listening to it and preaching on it, it's not easy, right? These verses will never make it onto a coffee mug or a poster on your wall. But Jesus gives fair warning. He paints this picture of a servant that doesn't think his master will return anytime soon, so he does whatever he wants. He's selfish, he's neglectful, he's abusive, he's reckless. Jesus says this servant will be punished and judged severely. He's going to be cast out of the house along with the unfaithful. That means he's going to be condemned for eternity. What's scary is that this unfaithful servant is in reference to people within the church. R.C. Sproul, he says this. This is what makes the text so scary. Jesus was not talking about people who are on the outside of the church. He's not talking about rank pagans who have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. He was talking about the people who are inside the church, have been appointed toward, uh, stewards of the kingdom of God, who have made professions of faith, who perhaps come to church each Sunday, and he may have been referring to ministers who have an extra high responsibility of stewardship. See, it could be any of us, and that is a frightening thought. Jesus uses this extreme and graphic picture of being cut in pieces to shock us, to wake his disciples up, to get them to emphasize the seriousness of being ready as faithful servants. 
right? It's a scary thought because you and I both know that while we might not be as bad as this um, drunken, abusive, unfaithful servant in this parable, still, like the unfaithful servant, we think Jesus is out of town for a while, that we have plenty of time. We think we're still young, we have plenty of time before we die, and so we put off our faith. Maybe, just, maybe we just want enough Jesus so we could feel good about ourselves. We think we can shore up our faith later, so we end up living lethargic lives of faith. Author and theologian uh, Frederick Buechner, he says this, <clears throat> Intellectually, we all know <clears throat> that we will die but we do not really know it in the sense that the, the knowledge becomes a part of us. We do not really know it in the sense of living as though it were true. On the contrary, we tend to live as though our lives would go on forever. There's no urgency. Whereas maybe we think we have plenty of time to be faithful. So we put off Jesus. Rather than living in the kingdom of God, we live for our kingdoms of self. And so Jesus gives us a wake-up call with this warning. This is kind of a downer, right? What do we do then? Do we try harder? Do we will ourselves to be faithful and joyful? Do we modify our behaviors out of fear? No. Reason we look to Jesus. We look to the gospel. And let me close with our last point. This is the service of Jesus. You know what I love about the gospel is that it is honest. It tells us that we are sinful. It tells us that we are selfish. It tells us that we are broken. It tells us that we are neglectful. Sometimes we care for others. Sometimes we serve others. A lot of times we care for and serve ourselves. The gospel assumes that we are unfaithful servants. It knows that while we can at times be faithful and wise and passionate, a lot of times we are faithless, we are dumb, and we are these sleepy servants. The gospel assumes that we deserve to be cut up and cast out. But do you know why the gospel means good news? Because while we were still sinners, while we were unfaithful servants, Jesus Christ died for us. He came to serve us first. He came as the only true and faithful servant who lived perfectly, who deserved nothing but glory and honor, and yet he took the severe punishment the severe judgment that we deserve. He was cut up. He was cast out. He was condemned on the cross for us so that, he could, so that we could live. Right? He did nothing wrong. And he did it risen because he is a good king. He is a loving king. Man, he is our servant king that loves us so much that he will do anything. He will do anything to bring us back into the kingdom. Matthew 20, 28 says this, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, risen Jesus Christ will return, and when he does, when he sees us, he's going to come and he's going to serve us. Verse 37, Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Prison, do you see why we can live in joyful anticipation for Jesus to return? It's because as we live, as we try to live, as faithful servants, as wise managers, 
We do this not out of fear of punishment or condemnation for when we mess up, when our faith is imperfect, but we do it out of a deep joy and love for our King and Savior that loves us. And He actually comes to serve us. He dresses Himself for service. He, sets, he seats us at His table, this table of honor and fellowship. And so you see, when we believe this beautiful gospel, and to the degree that we're able to grasp the weight of what it means for our lives, our lives will be radically different, will be radically moved and changed. We will live joyfully out of a renewed and transformed heart that longs, longs for Jesus to return. And so let me end with this quote by Phil Riken. These parables about servants and masters are some of the weightiest parables in the Gospels. They bring us face to face with our destiny. They show us that we all need a Savior. For whether we are more or less ignorant, whether we have been more or less faithful, we have all been neglectful in our stewardship. Who can say that we have always been at the ready or that we have made the best use of all the good things that God has given to us or, that, or today that we are living in full expectation of the coming of Christ? This is why we need a Savior, a Savior to suffer the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Jesus Christ is the true and faithful servant who took all our unfaithfulness upon himself when he died on the cross and that he buried it. He buried it, church, in the grave before coming back to life. And listen to this. Christianity is not a religion for faithful servants, but it is a gospel for unfaithful servants. Risen, receive the gospel this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, we are at your mercy. We are so broken, so unfaithful. Even on our best days, our motives are skewed. They're selfish. The more we understand how sinful we are, that we could never live up to these standards of these faithful servants, the more we will rely on you and cling to you and long for you to come back to restore this world, to restore our souls and our hearts, to bring us cleansing and forgiveness, to make us righteous again, Father. And so we thank you, Father, that in one sense you have already made us righteous and beautiful by dying on the cross, and we live in light of that truth, that we are imperfect and at the same time we are perfect. We live in this tension that we are fallen and broken and sinful and at the same time we are justified, cleansed, and made brand new. And this is the tension that we live in between these times of your first coming, of your second coming. The more we wrestle with this gospel, the more we will long for you to come back to restore our souls, Father. And so we pray, Lord, that you would make us a people that lives in joyful anticipation for you to return, that would stir our hearts to, be, to live faithfully, even as we mess up. It would stir our hearts to love more. It would stir our hearts to live out, not out of a selfish life, but out of a selfless life, using everything we have been given in this life to serve, to love, to bless others. That is our calling. That is our purpose. And so we pray that this gospel would move us again and again. It would renew us. That we wouldn't just think that this gospel is a good, feel-good type of thing, 
It'll just make us happy for the moment, but it is transformative. It will completely renew us, Lord. And so bring this to us. We need it. We need your gospel again and again. So thank you for these brothers and sisters that we can come together and we encourage each other in this gospel to remind us of this gospel. Be with us, Father. Remind us of your love. In Christ's name, amen.